The thrill and excitement of March Mania is here, and DraftKings Sportsbook, one of America's top-rated sportsbook apps, is giving new customers a shot to turn 5 bucks into $150 instantly in bonus bets with any college basketball bet. You can find all the lines and available odds, of course, at the DraftKings Sportsbook app. North Carolina listeners, don't forget, DraftKings Sportsbook is now live in your state. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app and use code SBNFL. New customers can bet 5 bucks to get $150 instantly in bonus bonus bets only at DraftKings Sportsbook with code SBNFL. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 8778-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction. Void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash bball for eligibility, deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. That's right. Bear down, Bears fans. Time for another edition of the Chicago Bears podcast, Bears Banter Powered. By Windy City Gridiron and SB Nation, Bill Zimmerman with you. And oh, it is a different feeling doing one of these podcasts after a win. Let me tell you, the negativity was just getting out of control. I didn't know what to say about this team anymore, but we're breathing a little life back into the franchise with a really nice victory on Thursday night. Had a few days to soak it in. And then, of course, Monday night football, Jordan Love throws three interceptions and the Packers lose to the Raiders. Well, that is a sweet weekend as far as I'm concerned. I am really excited for this episode, not just to talk about the win, but because Josh Lucas, yes, that's right, Josh Lucas, the former Chicago Bears director of player player personnel under Ryan Pace, he is going to be joining us here in just a little bit. Really excited to talk to him. If you haven't heard Josh Lucas, all right, this is important. I want you to all know, Josh Lucas, if you haven't heard him, has been on with Parkins and Spiegel on The Score. He's been on with Waddle and Sylvie on ESPN. He's been on Hogan Johns on their podcast twice. So a lot of questions have been asked and answered. Lucas has been very honest about some of the decisions that they made as a regime regarding Mitch Trubisky, regarding Justin Fields. So I don't want to ask him the same questions. I just don't want to have the same content that others did. So I'm going to try and build and ask different questions that those other interviews didn't didn't include. So if you haven't listened to those, I would recommend going and listening to those to get some insight on Trubisky and Fields and the thought process. Now we're going to build on those and I've got plenty of stuff that I want to talk to Josh about. So Make sure, you know, if you sit there, well, why didn't he ask him about this? If, I, if it was an interesting question about the Ryan Pace regime and I didn't ask it, that means there's a good chance it was already asked. So go back and check out some of the other content. Josh has been absolutely great doing these. He's doing more and more local media. Now he's starting to get some national media attention. This guy has a really good chance to be, uh, you know, a, a very good analyst for somebody moving forward, if that's what he chooses to do. So he's going to be by here in just a little bit, but let's talk about this and let's not bury the lead here. Justin Fields with another nice game. 
And, you know, now we've got eight touchdowns, one interception, and about 600 yards passing in his last two games, potentially turning the corner. I am not sitting there, you know, taking a victory lap yet on Justin, but I'm excited for what I've seen, but I need to see Justin growing in all facets. And I'm going to talk to Josh about this and get his opinion on where Justin is at this point. Because if you look at some of the specific data around Justin Fields, you're still going to see that there are things that we need to see him improve upon. I'm not going to sit here and nitpick on all of them and say he's doomed. Absolutely not. He has now has the foundation that he can build upon and start stacking good games. What have I said? We needed to get Justin Fields from stacking plays to stacking drives to stacking games. Then after that, then he can start stacking seasons and becoming a, a very good quarterback. Now we're at the point where we need Justin to start stacking games. That's two. We're getting there. So let, let's continue. Let's continue to move forward. Were there some issues in these games? Sure. We don't need to rehash the fourth quarter of the Denver Broncos game. We're not going to do that. But, you know, I've looked at some of the advanced completion percentage Justin Fields is fine in, in the short passing. He's fantastic in the deep passing. But the intermediate passing, which he was good last year, he's regressed. He's not doing well in intermediate passing. Intermediate passing is a critical aspect. We need to see that. Justin Fields picked apart, you know, a, a, a lot of man coverage. You know, we know he struggles more with zone coverage. It was man co more man coverage with Denver. Now, the zone coverage popped up in Washington. But again, a lot of hitches to DJ Moore. Now, again. That second touchdown pass to DJ Moore, that was a special pass. He couldn't have threaded a needle better than where he put that football. So I'm not sitting here saying I didn't like what I saw from Justin, but let's be honest, DJ Moore did the bulk of the work there on, on easy patterns and then breaking tackles and sprinting down the field. So again, I'm not sitting here saying Justin Fields had an elite performance, but you gotta like the numbers, you gotta like where he was, and you gotta like what he's building. Now he's got a Minnesota Vikings defense. It's below average. I think their DVOA is about 18th or 19th. It's definitely beatable. Justin Jefferson isn't going to be out there. So the offense may struggle a little bit more. So maybe the defense gives Justin a couple short fields. We'll see what can happen there. We'll see what this Bears team can start doing because there's an opportunity here over this next stretch of games for the Chicago Bears to really start putting together some victories and see if they can get themselves back in the mix here. The last thing you want is that mediocrity. You know, post-game show with E.J. Snyder that I did after the Washington victory, he said that would be so bears to get that six-win, seven-win number and, you know, really hurt their draft pick. Not be enough to really contend to get into the playoffs, not be bad enough to get that excellent pick. That would just be so bears to be mediocre. And that may be where they end up. We're going to have to see. But... Let's just say you can go out there and beat the Vikings. Now you're two and four. Then you've, I think, got the Raiders next. Three and four. You've got, you know, Chargers, Saints, Panthers. Can you go two and one in that stretch? Suddenly you're five and five. The schedule gets tougher after that. But at five and five, you're absolutely in the mix. Now, if this is a Bears team where that win was a little bit of a fluke and they're going to regress back to where they were more, then absolutely they could lose to Minnesota. They could lose to a Raiders team that just beat the Packers. They can obviously lose to the Saints or Chargers. So again, they could, instead of being five and five, it's not impossible for them to be three and seven. And three and seven, of course, is headed in the absolute wrong direction. So this, this month of October here, this next stretch and into early November, it's going to tell us a lot about this Chicago Bears team because they've got bad teams that they can beat. 
They've got good teams that they can potentially compete with, maybe upset, and, and uh, you know, a mediocre team there as well with the Saints. So we can kind of see where this Bears team is and if they've turned the corner. And it's not just Justin Fields turning the corner. Maybe it was Matt Eberflus turning the corner. Now, Sam Howell, young quarterback, basically a rookie because he didn't play at all basically last year, has been getting sacked a lot, you know, makes mistakes. Again, I, I enjoyed what I saw out of him. You know, there was some potential there if it can be harnessed and if he can improve upon where he's at. But right now, Sam Howell is a very beatable quarterback. He takes a lot of sacks. The Bears can't generate pressure. Now, they generated a lot more pressure against Washington. But again, this is a team that doesn't block for Sam Howell well. So did Matt Eberflus take advantage of an offense that struggles in certain areas? Or did Matt Eberflus start turning the corner? Because for the first time, when you watch the Bears defense this season against Washington, they looked like a professional defense. And, and that sounds almost insulting to say, but what he was doing early on in the season with these soft zones that quarterbacks were picking apart, just rushing four straight up, no stunts, no, no, no blitzing, nothing, nothing creative. That it was it was pathetic. And I don't understand what Matt Eberflus thought he was going to accomplish with those defensive play calls. Alan Williams for one game as well, but he's gone. We're going to talk about Matt Eberflus. I don't understand what Eberflus was doing there. Now, what he called against Washington is a sign of life. And now you're going to have a healthier secondary. Looks like Kyler Gordon might be back. Looks like Eddie Jackson might be back. Looks like Jalen Johnson might be back. We might have pretty much a whole secondary and you mix that with the rest of this team potentially doing better with what Matt Eberflus is calling on defense, maybe this defense starts looking a little better. Look, they gave up 20 points. It's not like they pitched a shutout or just gave up six points. They still gave up too much offense. You take 20 points every week, but again, that's not that much of an improvement from where they were. So we need to see this defense continue to get better because... While the offense certainly had blame for this 14-game losing streak, the defense held far more of the blame, and that was some of the statistics I put out on my Twitter account last week, just demonstrating that this defense, it didn't matter if the offense was good because the defense was so bad. Now, the offense wasn't good enough either. There's blame to go on both sides of the ball, but the defense just absolutely needs to get better, and we'll see if Matt Eberflus can do that. You know, this this Vikings team, even without Justin Jefferson, the you know, Kirk Cousins can can get some yards. So we'll see what Kirk Cousins can manage to do here against this Bears team. But this is going to be a critical, critical stretch here for the Chicago Bears. I also want to talk a little bit about the Chase Claypool trade and you know had some fun with that one when Claypool was finally sent off. And, and look, am I saying that Chase Claypool was the reason for all the struggles? But I think there was a lot more going on behind the scenes than, than, you know, what was being told publicly about Chase Claypool. I think, you know, from some of the rumblings I've heard that there were a lot of Bears players that were glad he was sent away. I, I think he was definitely causing a problem. And again, these guys are professionals. One player shouldn't be able to disrupt an entire organization. But it is kind of funny that the Chicago Bears, before the Chase Claypool trade, were 3-5 and five last year. They then proceeded to go 0-12 with Chase Claypool, 
And since he's been deactivated, they're now one and one and almost two and all with the Broncos game. So that's interesting to me. And again, I am not saying it's causation, but I am saying that there is definitely some level of a correlation there. Again, is it exact? Is it right on? Is it the exact reason? No, of course not. There were other things that played into it, but Chase Claypool was a major issue. That's going to go down. Whether Ryan Poles is here 10 years or two years, that's going to go down as Ryan Poles' worst decision of his career. And again, I think that dates back to Ryan Poles' decisions he made leading into year one, not really doing anything for Justin Fields, getting to the trade deadline and going, I need to help this kid out some way possible. So he goes out and he overpays for Chase Claypool. That overpay ends up being the 32nd pick. And then he dumped him for a pick upgrade, a seventh rounder to a sixth rounder. I like that it's, look, if we're going to try and find a silver lining, I like that it's 2025 versus 2024 because the 2024 draft, you're getting rid of your seventh round pick for the, uh, for the Dolphins' sixth round pick. The Dolphins are going to be picking in the back portion of that sixth round. The Bears are going to be picking in the front portion of that seventh round. So if that was a 2024 pick, that may only be like a 10 to 12 pick upgrade. But the fact that it's 2025 gives a chance for the Bears to improve. The Dolphins may regress. Who knows what's going to happen? Tua could get injured. I don't like saying that about players, but same thing about Tevin Jenkins. He could get injured. Tua tends to get injured. So, you know, that opens up the door there for that pick upgrade to be a little bit better in 2025 than it would be in 2024. So I'm glad that they settled on the 2025 rather than the 2024. But look, pretty much they gave Chase Claypool away. They found someone who was willing to take the salary and they just said, here you go. And, and that, less than a year after you acquired him, is a woeful, woeful trade when you gave up the 32nd pick. And by the way, the 32nd pick I saw this was Joey Porter Jr. who is playing lights out. And, you know, if you have Joey Porter Jr. there, then maybe you don't have Tyreek Stevenson. And I like Tyreek Stevenson. I think his coverage has been a little spotty here early, but I have hopes for him to improve, kind of like Kyler Gordon had some issues and has improved, and we hope to see Kyler get back on the field and continue to improve. But when we're talking about maybe having Joey Porter Jr. starting opposite Jalen Johnson, then you don't need Tyreek Stevenson in the later part of the second round. Then you can get maybe John Michael Schmitz, shore up the interior, you know, and, and there are, so and so forth. So you see what kind of that Chase Claypool trade could have done in terms of creating other issues, other holes, because Chase Claypool didn't do his job. We thought we had an opportunity there for the Bears to have three really good wide receivers. They're back down the two. Hopefully Darnell Mooney can start getting involved here because Darnell Mooney is not playing well. Maybe he's still getting healthy. Maybe he's it's mental and he's got to get confidence in that leg before he can really burst on it. I, I'm not sure what the problem is with Darnell, but right now for Justin Fields, he's got two targets. He's got DJ Moore. He's got Cole Komet, and he has not found a third guy yet. He needs a third guy, and looking at the roster, that third guy really needs to be Darnell Mooney. I don't think it's going to be Robert Tanyan at this point in his career. Darnell Mooney and, and Justin Fields really need to figure things out if this offense is going to click moving forward. And uh, finally, before we get to Josh Lucas, just again, and want to mention the passing of Dick Buckus and the loss that that is for the Chicago Bears organization 
Uh, if you're interested, you know, if you check a few episodes prior to this one, you'll see a special Bears banter with the Dick Butkus interview I did about five years ago. It was right after the 2018 season going into the 2019 season. It was that off season. So it was coming off that really good year with Matt Nagy. So we talked a little bit about that year, talked about his career, his acting career, talked about what he was promoting at the time, which was trying to help out his colleagues you know, his teammates from the 60s and 70s and them trying to get better pension and better health care from the NFL because a lot of those guys are, were really struggling with health. You know, Dick Buckus was that kind of guy. Dick Buckus, as rugged as a football player as he was, was a kind-hearted soul that used his celebrity to try and benefit others. You know, really good in Hollywood. And, you know, just he's going to be missed by this entire Bears community, whether that be the franchise, the fans, the former players. I mean, this this guy, he was a Chicago Bear. I mean, we talk about Bear weather and, and the Bears being a defensive-oriented team. Like, everything that we talk about kind of in that Chicago Bears, I don't want to say cliche, but that Chicago Bears, you know, exactly what we bleed, that orange and blue. The embodiment of all of it was Dick Butkus, that rugged player, those NFL films highlights where you just see him with taped bloody knuckles and just dirt all over him and vicious tackles, but yet, you know, and that's the one thing that I love talking about Dick Butkus about is he translates to the modern game because he was such a phenomenal coverage linebacker. He really, as, as far as I know, he really was the first one that really excelled in coverage, interceptions, dropping into coverage, you know, just being able to be a constant thorn in an offense's side, sideline to sideline tackles. He really could do it all. And he's had some, he had some offensive highlights as well, not on offense per se, but special teams caught a couple uh, extra points on, you know, there was no two point conversions then plays that, that, you know, dissolved and the holder had chuck it up to Dick Buckus who makes plays in the end zone scores points he was that kind of an impactful player he could do it all and you know when you talk about the big chicago bears of all time their impact whether as coaches players everything to me here's my top five my top five most impactful chicago bears at number five i put gail sears even though it was a short career what he did was was remarkable number four i put mike ditka and I know a lot of Bears fans roll their eyes about Mike Dickett, but he was an incredible tight end. Really one of the first great pass-catching tight ends. Really kind of revolutionized that position and opened the door for guys like John Mackey and guys to, to even improve upon it. Then you got into the 80s with Ozzie Newsome and Todd Christensen and into the 90s with Shannon Sharp and then Antonio Gates and Tony Gonzalez. And it, it created this, this new offensive weapon. Dickett was really the first and he was a coach of a team that was the most dominant stretch. You know, the 1940s was the most dominant stretch in Chicago Bears history. The 1980s was second. And Mike Ditka was at the helm there and won a Super Bowl. So with all that, I think Ditka's number four. To me, Dick Butkus is number three because of everything I previously mentioned. Walter Payton is number two. As much as I'd love to put Walter Payton number one, he's my favorite Bear of all time. He's what hooked me to the Chicago Bears as a kid. I wore kangaroos as a kid 
loved Walter Payton, but number one, he's the founder of the one of the founders of the NFL. George Hallis has to be number one. So that's the most impactful Bears as far as I'm concerned. Dick Buckus at number three. He was that important to the hundred plus years of this organization. So we're gonna get to Josh Lucas next. I am excited to talk to him. This is Bears Banter, Bill Zimmerman. We'll be right back. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity, but giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. All right, welcome back into the podcast. I am very excited for this guest. He is the former director of player personnel for the Chicago Bears. He had that under the entire regime time of, of Ryan Pace with the Chicago Bears. And plenty of the guys that he's brought aboard have been a part of this podcast. David Montgomery and Tariq Cohen, Mitch Trubisky, Alan Robinson, Akeem Hicks. I could go on. But he is Josh Lucas, and he joins us now. Josh, Bill Zimmerman, really appreciate you coming on. Thanks so much. How are you? Thank you, Bill, for having me. Excited to talk. I'm doing very well. I appreciate it. Well, let, let's talk about the the guy that your your regime drafted there in your, your final year, and that's that's Justin Fields, who I think had a lot of fans concerned after those first few weeks, but perhaps here turning the corner, the numbers the last two weeks have been fantastic. He's thrown some beautiful deep balls, eight touchdowns to one interception, over 600 yards. You know, it hasn't been perfect. There's been a couple of warts, but you know, in terms of at least statistically, it really looks like Justin Fields is playing a lot better. Yeah, so I think if you look at the first two weeks, Green Bay, Tampa, you saw some signs, you saw some flashes, um, also saw some concerning um, plays from the pocket where, you know, the whole world has seen them. There was pictures circulated and, you know, a lot of talked about uh, non-throws that, that were there to make that he didn't make. Uh, but you saw some flashes of, you know, what he can do. Um, you know, especially when we talk about, you know, in the pocket, delivering the ball down the field. Um, Kansas City, I thought, was bleak for the entire offensive side of the ball. I don't know if there was many quarterbacks um, on the planet that if you dropped them in that day in that situation could overcome, um, you know, what Justin had to overcome that day. Now there's quarterbacks that would have played better and would have helped uh, maybe overcome some of that stuff. Um, but starting in week four, Denver, Washington, obviously a huge jump in production. You know, the first place you always need to start, because it's not just one. Everyone wants to just like, what changed with Justin? To me, he got more confident. Why was he more confident? 
the offensive line's getting healthy. That first and foremost. So your protection's better. Your run game the last two weeks has been more consistent, more productive on first and second down, giving him more manageable throws to make on third down. Talk about offensive play calling, the offensive coordinator, not only installing plays, but when to call those plays. And and to me, he's doing a better job of keeping defenses off balance um, throughout the course of the game, moving the pocket more. Uh, It just feels, it feels like the run game and the pass game are in sync. They're married together a little bit better. All that stuff is contributing to his confidence. And then let's not overlook the most obvious thing. They play two defenses that are towards the bottom of the league, if not the very bottom of the league in scoring defense. That's for a reason. Those teams give up big plays. And Chicago did what they should do against bad defenses. They put up explosive numbers and and points, and, and Justin's numbers represented that. His rating represented that. And now the big question is, can he carry it over against defenses that have more uh, backbone and put up more of a, you know, more put up way more resistance. Um, And that's what you need to see over the course of the next 12 games to make you feel good that this guy can be a quarterback that, you know, what we all want to say is a franchise quarterback. Uh, But the confidence leads to quicker decisions. It leads to convicted throws. um, And, you know, the, the scheme is opening up and allowing for, receivers downfield that are coming open and he's simply getting the ball to those guys. Now, as someone who has worked in a front office, I mean, and you, you've pointed out a lot of it there, but for Justin specifically, are there things that you look for, you know, beyond the box score? Cause I, I think a lot of times we just look at a box score and go, Oh, that quarterback played well. That quarterback didn't play well. Didn't see the context of the game because I've seen some Justin detractors who have said things like, well, the Broncos, you know, moved to played a lot of man and, and Justin can beat man a lot easier. And against Washington, it was some hitches that DJ Moore kind of did the rest and DJ Moore. It was a lot of yak yardage that kind of DJ Moore did on his own. So you, you sit there and, and, and sit there and say anyone can kind of nitpick a game and take things away from a player. But for, for you personally, are there things? Is it, you know, time time in the pocket you know before he delivers the football is are there certain things that you look for beyond that us fans cannot see yeah just really quickly on in game you know watching the tape you know washington the first few chunk plays of the game were against zone coverage so i think you saw over the course of two weeks a lot of man a lot of zone he's beaten both of them for me obviously you know quarterback play comes down to playing on time within the scheme, knowing where to go with your eyes, getting the ball out on time. And then when it's not there, being able to produce off script offense. And I think you're seeing both of it. He's creating offense and then he's just playing simply within the rhythm. I talked about this last week on some media stuff I did. The most important thing about the last two weeks, by far to me, is rebounding from the adversity he was facing from the noise in the media and, and the pressure, you know, you heard Cole Komet mention it in the post-game interview after the Washington game. Like these players know what he's dealing with. They know what he's hearing. And trust me, it gets into the building. Everyone has an opinion now. Everyone can put that opinion online. 
the media takes a lot of that stuff and runs with it. Some of it's valid criticism, but it's loud, it's heavy, and it can suffocate these guys. For him to endure the most, um, you know, the, the heaviest and the loudest it's been post-Kansas City, come back with his two best games of his career, I think from a front office standpoint, from a coaching standpoint, when you're evaluating the quarterback long-term, especially playing in this city where it's going to be loud every time he has a shitty game, it is so important to see a guy be able to endure that, not be shaken from a confidence standpoint, and come out and produce. To me, that's the biggest factor when you're saying, is this guy, does he have what it takes to be the franchise quarterback? Now we have to see it consistently and we have to see it against better teams. Absolutely. And, you know, and I said before you joined the podcast that I wasn't going to repeat a lot of questions that had previously been asked by other media outlets. I want to try and build upon those. And and the one thing I want to talk about next that you talked about was was fluid intelligence and trying to find quarterbacks that have fluid intelligence. So I, I guess just to start kind of a basic, you know, definition what what are you what do you mean when you say you need to find quarterbacks with fluid intelligence yeah so you know something that i learned over the course of 20 years in the nfl um something that was completely foreign to me when i was a young scout you know we always talked about wonderlick tests you know at the beginning um you know and and base intelligence i think it you know to, to just to keep it as simple as we can on this podcast you know it's it's crystallized intelligence you know, and, and, and the easiest way to explain that is someone's ability to like learn information, take a test, repeat the information, you know, like memorization. You know, yeah. Memorization, sitting still and being able to like take a test, um, your ability to problem solve. You know, if someone gives you a, a, a question and, you know, you're sitting at a desk and it's just like crystallized, you're not there's nothing going on that you're having to process in real time. It's just your it's your raw intelligence. And what we saw a lot over the course of the years are guys with incredibly high Wonderlick scores, guys that are incredibly bright. Post-snap in a football game, they don't they don't process as fast. They don't see things as well. They don't they don't they don't um, you know handle the bullets flying as well as other players do. Maybe guys that have really low Wonderlick scores process stuff really fast in real time in the course of the game. So. Fluid intelligence, being able to make decisions under duress, under stress, with moving parts versus crystallized intelligence are two completely different things. Um, UCLA quarterback several years ago, Josh Rosen, probably the most intelligent, one of the most intelligent players um, that I ever scouted as far as just his his IQ, you know, really high Wonderlick score. I think both parents were Ivy Leaguers, like a brilliant, a brilliant mind. After the snap in a football game, not so brilliant. You know, a guy that scored really, really high on a Wonderlick test, but when you watch him play, you would say he doesn't play real smart once the ball snapped and he's trying to um, decipher information, process information, and find the open receiver, make the throw. Um, and that's just one example. So what? how do you measure that? That, that was going to be the next question. <laughs> how do you measure that? So. There was, you know, we used HRT tests. There's all kinds of different personality tests that would give you kind of a, a processing score, but it never really was applicable to like athletes. And so, you know, for us, the first time we were really introduced to it, 
and we heard about it was right around right around when we took Mitch um, was when the S2 test came out. So this is around 2016, 17, 18. Um, two athletes from, I believe, Vanderbilt University. I think one was a baseball player. Maybe one was track and field. Um, neuroscience. I don't even know all the technical stuff, but they developed this test because they wanted to measure it, I think, more along the lines of baseball. You know, I think the example they would always use is, you know, why does someone up there, you know, at the bat, see the, you know, see the pitch and process the pitch, what's coming to them much quicker than somebody else. And so, or, or the instincts to make, um, you know, a really quick double play transition in the infield. So I think they were trying to measure fluid intelligence after the pitch is delivered, after the ball is hit to pick up the ball, flip it, all that other stuff that happens in baseball. Um, and, and how do you measure it? And then, and then obviously, you know, they, they went out to the other sports, they developed this test. And I'll just say this without getting into too long of an explanation. It for all the positions in football, from my time studying the test, there was a lot of correlation um, with quarterbacks and safeties, which makes probably the most sense. I think the closer you get to the ball, linemen, inside linebackers, tight ends, the scores were all over the place. You know, Roquan Smith, I don't think scored really high on the test, but as an, as an instinctive and fast processor post-snap as there is in football. Um, so, like, it didn't make, make a lot of sense for a lot of the positions. I think it was a little all over the place. But for quarterbacks and safeties, there was a lot of um, correlation and in, in accuracy to it, especially at quarterback. Um, so that was our, you know, first introduction to that type of test. There are more tests now. Other teams use other tests that try to measure the same thing. Um, I'm not the best at explaining exactly what it measures. I know the S2, within the S2, there's one score, but there's 10 different components that, you know, 10 different scores. And then it gives you like an average in, in your final score. Um, and I'll just say this without getting into too much detail, you know, it's for quarterbacks who have scored poorly on that test. It's been pretty accurate as far as their ability to process information from the pocket. If you're a quarterback that makes a living with your legs and, and one read, pull it down, take off, make a play, obviously not as important. If you're a true pocket passer who has to make a living with your brain, just consistently processing, making throws from the pocket, guys that have scored really, really well on it have been some of the quarterbacks that we would say are much more successful and guys that scored very poorly on it have not had as much success. Are there outliers? Absolutely. But the data over, you know, this has been six, seven, eight years, whatever it's been, it, it's been pretty strong. It's valid. I think a lot of teams trust the test. Um, you know, we did not have access to it in the 2017 draft. It was so new. I think we knew it was out there, but there wasn't enough data to feel good about it. By the time we got to 20 um, or 21, I believe, uh, with the Justin Fields draft, you know, we were a part of S2. We liked it. We believed in it. And, you know, so that's, that's the easiest way I can describe, you know, fluid versus static and, and then how we've come to measure it. Okay. And, and let me ask you this about, about Justin and, and moving forward, because you've talked about how 
that not being your guy, so to speak, is is a very real thing. And I think when the dust settled with with your regime holdovers from the previous regime, I think the number was five. I think you guys kept Charles Leno, Kyle Long, McManus O'Donnell, and Kyle Fuller. And the rest of the roster was totally overhauled. So there's there's definitely something about bringing in your own guys and sure. winning with your own guys. So w- when we talk about that with Justin Fields, I, I put something on Twitter last week. I spoke with a very well-respected NFL analyst. It was off the record, so I'm not going to use his name. But he said something, and I put it on Twitter, and it, I did not think it was going to have as much legs as it did. Basically said that if the Bears have the number one pick, there's nothing Justin Fields could do that should prevent the Bears from drafting Caleb Williams. And he was that high on Caleb Williams. Now, basically what I think he's saying is obviously if the Bears have the number one pick because of the Bears record, obviously Justin didn't do enough if they won two, three, four games again and had the number one pick. But it's taking it a step further with that Carolina Panthers record. And the fact that, I mean, the Panthers, there's some infighting. Frank Reich's talking about how it's tough with this owner. You know, uh, Hayden Hurst is saying some things. So the Panthers are winless here and, and they're starting to have some issues. So if, if, you know, if Justin plays well, but doesn't, you know, play elite, but, you know, definitely shows that growth and the Bears win six, seven games, whatever it might be, you know, I don't think they're going to win nine or 10 this year. It's a, it's a growing season, but the Panthers do have just one of those awful seasons, go two and 15 and have the number one pick. And, and I know it's impossible to put yourself in, in Ryan Poles' shoes in that situation, but, but that would almost be an unprecedented situation in the NFL that you would have a good quarterback who you don't know if he's going to be a great quarterback, but you have an opportunity to move up with this, you know, this quarterback who everyone's saying the best since Andrew Luck, you know, keeping praise. I know he didn't have a great game last week, but, you know, even a guy like Drake May sitting there at number two. So you've got these two big time quarterbacks available and you'll have a better idea what you have with Justin. I mean, that would be a big roll of the dice to try and, change at quarterback, but it's also the type of move where you could get a Patrick Mahomes generational type player. So what, what, as a front office guy, what can you kind of, what kind of insight could you put into being in a situation like that? Very jealous. If that's the case, if you, (laughs) if you have that pick through Carolina um, and you're happy with the way Justin's playing and you feel good that he's good enough to, to carry you to an eventual Super Bowl, uh, envious position to be in like, this is where you give a ton of credit to this new regime and Ryan Poles for the trade they made last year. Um, obviously, you never can predict what Caroline is going to do. But part of the reason I'm sure they made that trade was Carolina doesn't have a strong roster. They're going to be playing a rookie quarterback. That number one pick next year could be very high, and it's looking like it's going to be. So I, envious would be the first thing I would say. This is a special quarterback. I think to me, if you're talking next year's class, and I've watched every one of these quarterbacks that is said to be going in the first round, he's special. It's as close to a layup as you're going to get when you're taking a quarterback, and it probably makes sense to compare it to Andrew Luck because he's the last one I can think of where you just knew. Trevor Lawrence maybe a little bit, but you know, I think there was some, you know, not as much conviction on him. Um, when you watch the rest of these quarterbacks, um, it reminds me of a lot of typical first round classes where they're extremely talented. They're worthy of first round picks, but there's clear holes and concerns. And I would never say any one of these other guys is going to be a layup easy pick. So you're talking about, like you said, once every 10, 15 years. Um, 
either way, either way you go, if you keep Justin, that pick's worth gold and you're going to get gold back. If you feel good about the way Justin plays and you want to go with Caleb, you're going to get something for Justin as well. So they're in an unbelievable situation. Um, to me, just being honest with you, like knowing where Justin was coming out and where Caleb was coming out, like Caleb is definitely the much better prospect coming out. Um, I don't think it would, if just talking out loud here without knowing everything about the player and, sure. and seeing the rest of his film, like, I don't think it would set you back too far because you was once you say, Hey, we're going with a rookie. Now you're setting the clock back a little bit because it takes time for young quarterbacks to, to play well in this league. I think his curve won't be as steep and he'll get there sooner than most. Um, and they still have some roster reconstruction to do on the defensive side of the ball. Um, I, 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 he would be very hard to pass up from what I've seen of Caleb Williams, you know, and then based on what we know of Justin right now, because I think you and I can look at each other right now, as much as I love Justin, as much as I want him to succeed in the NFL, um, not only because we took him, but because he's a Buckeye and I'm a huge Buckeye fan. There's a lot of uncertainty right now. Um, and there's nothing that we can say from his first two years and five games that we have conviction that he's going to be a quarterback that's going to take us to a Super Bowl. If he gets there in the next 12 games, obviously it muddies the waters a little bit. Um, I'll go ahead and say right now, if you have that number one pick and Caleb comes out in this draft, like that's going to be really hard to pass up. It's going to be really hard to pass up. Now, uh, let me ask you this. This is kind of just a, a side note to that because you know, I think pe people love draft day trades and, and and trying to figure it out. And, you know, there's been, you know, more information that that's come out lately, like the Jimmy Johnson model and and how, you know, teams try to figure how much of a pick is worth and everything when you make these draft day trades. And I know, obviously, when you have like the Bears made a move with DJ Moore and future picks that and that's all different. But in, in a traditional draft day trade if a team wants to trade up five picks and they kick in like the fourth round or whatever in the second you know whatever it might be is that jimmy johnson model or the rich hill model that, that we hear about is that how teams use it or does every team kind of have their own evaluation process how how do you determine how draft picks how valuable draft picks are yeah so the, that model obviously exists and it's there's been several more created um you know talking to you know people that, that have worked, you know, I never worked a lot on like the specific points of the trade and the trade charts. We had other people that did it on draft day, okay. but they're all very similar. They're all very similar. I think when you're talking most trades that aren't involving first round picks, everyone's using those charts and, and maybe you win or you lose a little bit. It's, it's, it's pretty routine. I think when you're talking about first round picks and, and specifically top top of the first round picks, there's a lot of um, based on previous trades that go into it as well. So like, what's the going rate? Um, when teams have moved up aggressively to go up to the top, you know, though every time that's done, it sets a precedent. So what did San Francisco give up to go up to number three a couple of years ago? Well, that's going to set precedent. And that's going to be the standard, even if it doesn't agree with the chart, 
So I think when you're talking top of the first round, first round trades, it's going to be a lot of precedents that have been set on prior, no different than a, a top of the market position player signing a contract. Right. You know, right. that sets the precedent. It doesn't matter what your chart says or what you think you should pay a top receiver. You know what it is now because that that guy just got paid that money. That's kind of how those high volume, um, you know, very important top of the first round trades work based on the the previous results. Because yeah, because to me, if the if the Bears do end up with that number one pick and decide to commit to Justin Fields and they're going to trade that pick with that type of player there, I think you throw the chart out the window. Like throw a, the chart out the window with Caleb Williams for sure. That's just real. Like that's a generational that pick, hole. That pick is going to be worth gold um, this year, specifically because of that particular player. If it was Drake May, obviously it would still be coveted. It would still be valuable. But if Drake May was the the top quarterback in this draft, or you know JJ McCarthy or or Quinn Ewers or whoever number two is, if let's say Caleb didn't come out. The pick's still worth a lot. Obviously, it's going to resort back to what did those last few teams do to get up to this high to pick one, two, or three, whatever. With Caleb, you said it. Throw him out the window. Like you're going to have you're going to have a lot of leverage there because he's just a unique talent. Um, you know, from everything I've heard, special person, special makeup from the pocket anticipation, accuracy, arm talent, and then the creation with the athletic ability. And then once he's outside the pocket, the vision to see and feel, um, which really separates him, I think, a lot from some of these past prospects. There's very few holes. Like, there's very few, like, well, what about this? Because usually, even with first-round quarterbacks, you're like, oh, what about this? Or, you know, there's something with him. It's, it's really, really, really clean right now. All right. Well, while we're talking about trades, I want to ask you this, because I, I think this is be really interesting for a lot of fans. And that's what it takes to pull off a massive trade, because you guys pulled off arguably one of the biggest trades in NFL history when you acquired Khalil Mack. I mean, in terms of, you know, I mean, the Russell Wilson trade, the Denver was a huge one. Everyone talks about the Herschel Walker trade, you know, whatever that was 30 years ago now at this point. But I mean, you know, two first round picks, you get an impact edge, which is one of those positions that's just, you know, teams don't usually give up on. Like, to me, that's not just Ryan Pace calls the the Raiders and they talk a little bit and, and the trade <laughs> goes down. That That to me seems like months of work you know, ownership, you know, you, you got to probably get George McCaskey involved with those types, like how impactful, how, how many people are involved in trying to pull off a trade like that? Yeah. It's when it's that magnitude, you know, even as the personnel director, you know, the person, you know, right below Ryan in the, in the, uh, you know, your organizational flow chart, <laughs> like I'm not very involved in something like that. You know, obviously, <laughs> I, like let's let's build. Let's be real. <clears throat> if if Ryan and Coach Nagy walked in my office and said, "Hey, we we want to trade for Cleo Mack," and I say, "I don't think he's very good," they're gonna roll. They're gonna roll their eyes at me and walk right out. Like obviously, we all graded the player. We do the normal protocol when we hear someone may be available. As many eyes as the building on the player, making evaluations gathering as much information as we possibly can from sources around the league regarding who the player is something, buddy. But when it's that kind of magnitude, that's, that's your GM, your head coach, and you know, your ownership, your president, 
Um, and you know, I'm, I'm not sitting in those circles and in those meetings, listening to what's going on in there. Obviously it's all about, it's all about, you know, asset, you know, relocation now. So, you know, what are you giving up financially draft picks? How's that going to affect your ability to build a competitive roster? You know, those are decisions that your, you know, your, your football admin cap guy, your GM and your ownership are sitting around talking about, um, you know, and, and, and like you said, the point of your question, yeah, it involves everyone in the building that is at the very, very top of your, of your organization. All right. And while we're kind of talking about the guys on that 2018 defense, there's one player I want to ask you about, because I think in terms of when you talk about expectation in term for acquisitions that you guys made, obviously, you know, Khalil Mack, was a huge reason for the success of that 2018 defense. I mean, he just was a wrecking ball from the moment he stepped out on the field against the Packers. That first half was was a, that 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 loss that you guys had to start the season in 2018. The Green Bay felt like a win to me, and I know it's a loss to the Packers, but Mac was so impactful in that first half. Like I look back on that game, I don't think about you know the second half. I think about what he did in that first half. But Absolutely. but a, a, another player that was just huge was was Akeem Hicks. And, and I, I'm sure the pursuit there was because of the ties you guys had to him to new, in, in New Orleans and, and you knew the, the development that he could be. But the one thing that I always heard, and, and I, I think maybe Bill Belichick's lost his fastball a little bit at, at this point, but that's not a knock on him. What Bill Belichick, I had always heard, if Bill Belichick wanted to keep a player, he kept the player, always. Like he never lost a guy. But... I had heard that Akeem Hicks was a guy that Bill Belichick believed in and wanted to keep, and you guys were able to to get him to Hallis Hall, basically not not allow him to leave, get the ink on the contract. Uh, you know what what was it about Akeem Hicks? You know where where he was basically. It, it sounds like to me whether it was you or Ryan or whoever, like that was a pound the table kind of you know pound your fist on the table kind of guy. This is a guy we need to bring in for this defense. Yeah, um, obviously. To go to the beginning of your statement and question, um, as impactful as any player we had as far as making that defense special, um, you know, I think, you know, just talking about free agency before we get to Akeem, you know, when you, you all hear all the time, teams have $100 million in cap space and they got, it's not always the greatest position to be in. <laughs> Guys become available for a reason. And you're oftentimes, as you mentioned, you're overpaying because you're getting in bidding wars for the same players. So free agency to me is all about avoiding landmines, like because they're out there and, and guys become available and get out of buildings for a reason. So for us, it's all, you know, having the familiarity with not only the person and the, and the player, so the talent and the character. And we were more than comfortable, obviously, with the character. We knew who he was. Those were, that one was out there at the time. You got to remember, let's tie this to like what's going on with Chase Claypool right now. Chase Claypool is sending out signals to the NFL that, hey, maybe I'm not the best person to have in the locker room, you know, given what I can put on the field from production standpoint. So it's buyer beware. They could, you know, they traded them, but let's face it, they basically, you know, you know, a six and seven swap in 2025. They essentially just cut the player is, is basically what they did because the player is sending out signals to the NFL. I might not be great in the locker room. This 
happened in New Orleans with a cane and the head coach. It got a little ugly. They moved on from the player early. They traded him for it wasn't high. It might have been a fifth round pick, or I think it might have been like tight end or a tight end. Yeah, yeah. my blocking tight end, whatever yeah. it was. It was not a uh, sexy trade as far as compensation goes for the Saints. So you're saying you're t- hey, we want this guy out of the building. Like, I'm just gonna say what it is, what it really is. Like we want this guy out of the building because because anyone can watch Akeem on tape and see how talented he is. He goes to New England. He plays in a handful of games to finish out that season. I, you saw the dominance. I believe there was a game against Houston. This is you know six years ago, I think, but there was a game against Houston late in that season. I think that had been 2016, maybe, um, where you're not blocking Akeem Hicks one on one when he wants to get to the ball. Like this is the bottom line. When he wanted to play and he wanted to go, you're not blocking him. And you saw it on that tape. I was, I thought there was going to be a big market for him because how hard it is to find a disruptive interior defense alignment that can stone the run all day long and also win one-on-one battles and get to the quarterback. They're so hard to find. And when you find them, they're usually on really, really good defenses because they create really, really good defenses. They disrupt the entire game. You see it in Kansas city every week. You see it with the Rams when, when, you know, Aaron Donald, you know, is, is, is playing his game. Um, There's one in Tennessee right now, Jeffrey Simmons, like they're hard to find They're The supply does never meets the demand. And he showed it on that late new England tape. I thought there was going to be a big market for him just because of the availability and the lack of supply and the demand being always, always high. And um, obviously for us fit our defense, perfect five technique and base, can play the three technique and nickel, which you're in 70% of the time. Um, You know, we were comfortable with the character and you said it exactly right. Like once we got him in Hallis Hall, Ryan Pace, Joey Lane, outstanding job of making sure that deal got done, you know, and and there's no question 100% accurate we got that deal done because we were in New Orleans with him. He he knew us. He trusted us. He trusted what we were saying. I think he really liked what we were doing defensively. We had, you know, we had the best defensive coordinator in the NFL. Um, I think he liked the idea of a big market being in Chicago. Um, and, uh, you know, I remember, remember the agent, the agent coming down to the office. I remember that. Um, and the agent going in with Joey Lane and, there was zero, I think once that happened, and, and I don't recall the specific details, but there was pretty much zero chance he wasn't going to be a Chicago Bear. And um, I think, you know, having relationships in New Orleans and, and having relationships in New England, you know, I think both those organizations, you know, once they saw what he did for us the next, you know, five, six years, you know, you always have some regrets. Um, he's, he's a special player. You know, he really is. He was, he was as dominant. Um, probably should have gotten more accolades that he that Absolutely. he did as far as like Pro Bowls and All Pros. 
Um, because, you know, when you're game planning for a team, I know when we were game planning for a team and, you know, this guy can destroy the game and beat you. If we don't, if we don't double them, don't take care of them. And for us, he was one of those guys, obviously along with 52 as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I I think another thing that you guys did really well that people maybe don't talk about enough. And to me, it's a critical aspect to having sustained success in the NFL and that's the development of day three draft picks. Like you can't live on day one, day two, and free agency. You're just you're just not going to be able to fill out 53 guys. And and the fact that you guys, not just like depth pieces and good pieces like like Nick Kwiatkowski was a fourth rounder, but like Amos and Eddie Jackson, fifth, fifth and fourth round guys, and getting guys like Roy Robertson Harris, who was an undrafted free agent, Bilal Nichols, and, and all that. Like, of course, you expect Roquan Smith. You know, it's a first round pick. You ex you have expectations of that. But, you know, when you draft Eddie Jackson, you're not expecting him to be in the running, I, I wouldn't think, for Defensive Player of the Year in 2018. Like, that, that, that's not that expectation. So how is it to – how do you get the most out of those day three picks? Is that positional coaches? Like, is that just – is there something about that pops on tape? How, how do you get those day three picks to develop, you know, for, for, for teams? I love it. Never, never one thing. Um, you know, I, I would say – just being candid, you know, from us, we knew when we drafted a defensive lineman, when Jay Rogers was with us, we like, we felt so good that that player was going to develop and reach his potential. Jay was as good as it gets as far as evaluating, um, having buy-in on the player and making sure he worked with them to develop them. So sometimes it is a position coach. I'm going to speak more broadly, um, when we got hired in 2015, Vic Fangio was our defensive coordinator. From the moment we started working to build out that roster, we had a an identity on the defensive side of the ball. And we knew exactly what kind of players we needed to fill out the roster to make sure Vic had what he needed to be successful and I think if you look at the seven years we were there from, from pro free agency and the college draft, we were very successful and consistent drafting and signing defensive players. Other side of the ball, we really struggled Four offensive coordinators in seven years. We never really found our identity on the offensive side of the ball. A lot of that was on us for some, for some draft picks that we made that didn't pan out. When you're picking in the top three rounds, those guys have to work out. And when they don't, it, it creates a void and it makes it really hard on coaches to, to develop an identity and establish. So I would say from the lack of continuity of coaches and then some missed draft picks, we never really were able to sustain an identity on offense. It was always a moving target. What type of run team we were, how we were going to attack through the pass game. And I think it really affected the development of the players. And on the other side of the ball, they came in. We knew what we were doing. We never changed. Even when Chuck came in, we never changed. We kept it consistent. And we went back to Sean Desai after Chuck left after two years. Defense never changed. Um, I think we did a really good job communicating it to our scouts. Our scouts did an unbelievable job going out and finding guys that fit that system. And that's why we had a lot of success with defensive players and and, and, you know, day three guys and probably why we had so much inconsistency and struggle 
on the other side of the ball. Um, and that's probably the easiest way to, to explain our, our seven years there. All right. A couple more with Josh Lucas. This is an absolutely amazing interview. Really appreciate him joining me. Uh, one thing I want to ask you, it, it's not quite as relevant as it was uh, a week ago, but I, I still want to ask it to you because I think it was it was really remarkable just watching it from the outside, how difficult here these these first four games were on Matt Eberflus and the entire organization. You know, everything that could go wrong went wrong from the even with Alan, Alan Williams. And uh, there were just so many issues facing the team. And you could just you could see it on Matt Eberflus's face when he was at the press conferences. And, and, and I, I don't think you guys ever, ever experienced anything like that. But obviously there were issues, especially at the at the tail end, end of your regime. You know, I remember you know, rumors that Matt Nagy was going to get fired at Thanksgiving and, you know, whether it had any validity to it or not, it didn't matter because the media and the fans and everyone was talking about it. And I, I feel like that's got to build an, a tremendous amount of pressure within the organization. Maybe, maybe you guys can block it out. I don't know, but it just feels like it, you, that, that kind of pressure, and it doesn't matter how, how good of a guy George McCaskey is. He's got a franchise and an organization he's got to run. How much, how difficult is it for not, not just the head coach or the general manager, but for, for everyone, you know, you're tied to Ryan Pace, you know, that if, if he's gone, most likely you will be too. Like, like how difficult is it to do your job day to day when that kind of pressure is mounting at Hallis Hall? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I, th I think much harder for the players than it is for, this is just my opinion, you know, from being in it and seeing it. And, and we felt it, obviously you, you mentioned it. I don't know, you know, the last, the first four weeks of the season was bad. It was bad for us too, at times, no doubt for several of those years um, um, when we weren't performing up to the level we should have been. And then at the end, when we were losing way too much um, to do your job on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, honestly, I don't think it impacted, you know, I can just speak for myself. Um, it didn't impact me tremendously uh, you go in, you know what you need to do, and you get it done. This is this is where, like, the maturity and the experience of your building is very critical. It's why you got to be careful of getting into this cycle of hiring first-time GM, first-time head coaches, and then if you keep turning them over, turning them over, you're going to run into the same stuff over and over again. It's almost like a little insanity because first time head coaches and GMs are all going to go through it for the first time. So, you know, this is why it's so important that you have other members in your organization who have been through it, have experience. And I think we were very, very young and it was, you know, I think it was, it was extremely hard on a lot of us because we had never been through it before. Um, but you have to block it out. You know, it helps to have calm voices who have been through it because, you know, at the end of the day, like as loud as it gets and as hard as it is, none of it matters. The only thing that matters is if you're a personnel person, you know, getting your work done, giving good evaluations, making sure you're trying to set the table. Coaches, same thing. Players, same thing. Go out and if you win games, it dissipates really quickly. We just saw it like 0-4 go on the road, win a game and how much you just like, oh, like it just like, it just, it just dissipates. And in and, and the media, you know, they want, I, from my experience, and I think they want to write positive stuff. You know, sure. they don't want to write awful stuff all the time, but if you're giving them no reason to write good stuff, they got to write what they're seeing and what's true. So, um, you know, I think to answer your question, like as, as, as honestly and truthfully as I can, like, 
you know, I don't think anyone in our, you know, building from a coach or a, a scout standpoint, you know, I think we, we, Ryan did an unbelievable job of keeping that um, whole building together. You know, like you got to realize everyone now has opinions. And so like, and everyone's reading this on their phone. So like, it's going to get into the building. Like, you know, it's going to be getting into the building. And this is where I think to give our regime a little bit of credit, I know we weren't talented enough to win games. So obviously we got fired. We take the blame for that, but we built a really strong locker room, you know, and we hired a lot of really good people in the coaching staff and the personnel side. And, and we had really good relationships inside that building. And I think when you have some maturity and you have a strong bond, and it, there's not a lot of infighting, it makes it a lot easier. Cancerous people, whether they're scouts, coaches, players, if they're isolated, if you don't have too many of them, they're benign. You know, they, they, they get put in their place and, and they're not too loud. If there's, a, if there's a void of leadership and times get really tough, they can become malignant and then they start grabbing other people. I honestly, obviously we had issues. We had things come up, but for the seven years we were there, like I think because of the players we brought in, the kind of people they were, the, the people that, that coach Fox and coach Nagy put around them. And then obviously the job Ryan did on the front office side, um, there was good relationships. We stayed together. Um, and, and even till the very end, there wasn't a lot of infighting and it never got to a point where we completely fractured inside because we had mature people and we had good people. We just didn't uh, win enough games. The, the bottom line, it's a results-based results -based business. So uh, last thing for you, and, and again, I've, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Hopefully we can do it again sometime. Um, the, the 2021 offseason. Uh, you know, obviously led to Justin Fields getting getting drafted by you guys, and and you've talked about that in detail and in some other media appearances. But but what I, I was kind of curious about was was going into that off season where you know you had made the decision and Mitch Trubisky's time in Chicago was gonna was gonna conclude that he wasn't gonna return, and, and there was a lot of rumors and conversations about the Bears trying to go out and get a veteran quarterback. And we heard rumors about Carson Wentz. And I think there were rumors about Derek Carr or uh, yeah, Derek Carr, <laughs> David Cairo, I almost said, but um, you know, then, then it really, you, you heard, there was a lot of juice to, to Russell Wilson potentially coming to Chicago. And, and it got to the point where, you know, Adam Schefter tweets it out when Adam Schefter tweets it out, you know, it's like Woj in the NBA. There's just certain guys where it just, it, it doesn't become a rumor. It becomes news that the Chicago bears had made an a, a aggressive, uh, uh, you know, an aggressive offer for Russell Wilson. There was rumors it was done at Trey Lance's his pro day and all, all this different stuff. So we hear, hear all these rumors. I'm, I'm just curious, you know, how, how close were you guys? How, how much effort was there at Hallis Hall to try and bring, bring Russell Wilson to Chicago? Yeah. So obviously you said it, we made the decision to move on um, from Mitch. Um, so you're, you got three cycles before you get to the, you know, your off season program. Potential trades, pro free agency, the draft. Um, we were in the market for a new quarterback, obviously. Um, that resulted in Andy Dalton right. and, Justin, and Justin Fields. Um, every trade scenario was talked through. 
would these guys be worth giving up compensation for and give us a chance to, to, to win? So obviously we talked about Carson Wentz. We talked about um, Carr. Uh, we talked about Russell Wilson. Um, I think, you know, just to answer your question as it pertains to Russell Wilson, I think the media really blew it up, especially when his agent named the right. city that, that he wanted to go to. Um, obviously these are conversations that Ryan Pace is having with other GMs. Um, I, I'm not abreast of like every exact conversation yeah. he had with, with the GMs for these teams. This is my take on it. I, it never got to a point where there was an offer. There never got to a point that, that I know of. There never got to a point that, um, there was specific compensation being talked about inside our building and maybe it was above my head. I think, my interpretation of the whole thing is I think Seattle did a really good job of not telling teams they weren't going to trade them until the very end. You know, so I think they left it open-ended on, you know, they weren't, I don't think they were telling people no, but they weren't telling people yes by any means. Um, and then I think, you know, whenever it ended at the very end, I think it was just simply, you know, Seattle saying we're not trading him. Um, I can tell you, I never wa walked into House Hall one single day and thought we were getting Russell Wilson. Not okay. one. And that is an honest, um, you know, as, as clear and honest as I can be. You know, it, it was talked about. Um, it was much more sensationalized in the media. Um, you know, did Ryan in Seattle talk? I'm sure they did. But never was it a feeling in our building that he was coming into our building. Gotcha. Yeah. Cause I mean, obviously Seattle wasn't opposed to trading him because a year later they did. So, you know, that, sure. that was uh, certainly something that, that was on the table at, at that point, but Josh, I, I, I could talk to you another half hour, but that wouldn't be fair to you. Thank you for so much time. I, I really appreciate it and, uh, and best of luck and, and hopefully I'll talk to you again soon. Awesome. Thanks, Bill. Right, there he is, Josh Lucas. I'll tell you what, if you don't like that interview, then you are not a bears fan. That was incredibly detailed and really just some absolutely fantastic information really gives you some insight as to what goes into a front office, how they think things through processes, what they look for, how they scout. I, I just thought that was a great interview. And, and plus, you know, got to talk a little bit, you know, I, I didn't think, didn't give me a ton on the Khalil Mack trade, but I thought the Akeem Hicks information was interesting. You know, there, there, there's a lot of things that kind of, that, that go on there over seven years. And I, I, I thought Josh did an absolutely tremendous job with that interview. So I hope you enjoyed that. And again, and look, I, you know, I am a Justin Fields supporter and I want this guy to succeed and I want him to be a successful quarterback in Chicago. But you heard Josh Lucas there when I asked him about Caleb Williams and I posed the situation about the Panthers gifting the Bears the number one pick. And this is a guy who did the work and was part of the, the front office that drafted Justin Fields. And he said, you might have to go with Caleb Williams. So that that's going to be interesting here. If, I mean, if the Panthers win a few games here and end up giving the Bears the third, fourth, fifth pick, you know, it's not a conversation. But they are the only winless team. And, you know, you've got Hayden Hurst saying things now to the press. you got Frank Reich talking about the owner meddling. That, that 
team is on the cusp of a meltdown. It really feels that way. So that's going to be interesting to watch from a Bears perspective. So let's do the questions. Uh, as always, I go to Twitter, Bill at Bill T. Zimmerman, and hit me up for some questions for the podcast. We've got a few. So let's get to them. I'm going to combine these two. At Robert Zaglinski, our old friend from Windy City Gridiron, and TJ Gobig, at Gobig TJ. Robert Zaglinski says, worst quarterback of, say, the past 30 years in five games? No reason for that specific number. And TJ asks, how's the bet looking so far after week five? And for those of you who, who may not be aware, Peter Bukowski, the Bears troll that he is, I challenged him and he accepted a bet and we settled on it. Jordan Love versus Justin Fields on the season. I let Peter pick the parameters. We're going with EPA per play. So pretty straightforward there, EPA per play. Uh, in, in Fields versus Love. Whoever finishes better at the end of the year, that is the winner of this bet. And for a while there, it looked bleak for Justin Fields and yours truly. But we have seen a pivot here the last couple of years. So EPA per play, Justin Fields, he was down around 30-31. He has risen to 25th. And Jordan Love, who was top 10 the first couple weeks, so they were separated by like 25 quarterbacks. It looked bleak. Jordan Love has fallen to 18th. So Jordan Love not playing well here. The three interceptions uh, on Monday Night Football certainly didn't help. But here's what's interesting. If you get rid of his EPA per play from week one against the Bears, him and Fields are neck and neck. And I understand we don't get to do that. I'm sure Packers fans could be like, well, if you get rid of Justin Fields' EPA per play against Denver or against Washington, well, then they'd have the same situation. So I, I get that. But what I'm saying is right now we've got a smaller sample size. And because of that, that greatly affects that. But it looks like Love is going to continue to trend in the wrong direction. He may right the ship a little bit, but he's certainly not going to be very high in EPA per play. And, of course, we know that our guy Justin Fields, especially if he continues this up, he is going to keep rising up the ranks. So right now, TJ, I am losing the bet, but I am also feeling pretty good about it right now. And, Robert, to answer your question, yes. Jordan Love, at least in terms of starting quarterbacks, not someone who may have snuck in a, a start in week 17 because Aaron Rodgers or Brett Favre was resting. Uh, yeah, Jordan Love is not the answer at quarterback for the Green Bay Packers. And hopefully he is the answer we're looking for, which is bring the Packers to mediocrity. That's the best thing for as much as we want to see the Packers go two and 15. And I'm right there with you. Two and 15 opens the door for Caleb Williams or Drake May or, you know, whoever is the next hot shot quarterback, you know, Manning, you know, when, when he, he comes out, who knows if he's going to be there, but you know what I'm talking about. If they're really bad, they have a chance to turn things around. If they sit there winning six, seven, eight games every year, kind of like the bears were with Jay Cutler, 
then you're stuck with the 13th, 14th pick every year, not high enough to go up and get a great quarterback, but you're never competing for the playoffs, or at least if you do, you sneak into the playoffs, you don't really challenge for a Super Bowl. That's what we want for the Packers. That's the best case scenario for the Bears, is for them to basically relive the Jay Cutler era. So when I go to Twitter and I say that Jordan Love's numbers are trending towards Jay Cutler-type numbers, and that's good, I'm not trying to rip Jay, guys. If you're a Jay Cutler fan, go be a Jay Cutler fan. But you know Jay Cutler was not an elite quarterback, and if you think that, I don't know what to say to tell you. So Jordan Love being mediocre, that is a very good thing. Now how about JT Barzak, who says, should we be worried a couple of these current one-win teams are going to pass the Panthers in the Tankathon standings? And JT, I'll just kind of reiterate what I just said about the Panthers. Sure, there are some bad football teams. The New England Patriots guys are sneaky bad. I don't know if Bill Belichick has it in his DNA to tank, but that is a situation where they could absolutely end up in like the top three of this draft. They, they, they are a bad football team, and they are not going to turn this around anytime soon with their personnel. But the Panthers, they're on the cusp of maybe imploding here. They really are. They've got a little infighting. The coach isn't happy. There's some things going on with the Panthers. So, of course, we have to keep an eye on this throughout the year. This is this is a fascinating thing to own a first-round pick like this. I, I We've never experienced this. The last time the Bears had an extra first-round pick was back when they drafted Rex Grossman. They had two first-round picks that year, but they traded back to get those two first-round picks. So I think you have to go back to, like, 1989, when they drafted Trace Armstrong and Donnell Wolford. And I don't even remember. I was too young. I don't even remember how, how that came about. So this is a fascinating thing for Bears fans, for me especially, owning a different draft pick of another team, a first-round pick, and having the season play out. So, yeah, we are, we are very anti-Panthers on this podcast, and for good, good reason. Uh, all right, let's get to a couple more. At Antonio Belisil, what are realistic expectations for Tanyan this year? Well, look, this is what I think is interesting here with Tanyan, and I'm going to combine this with Darnell Mooney. The Bears do not have right now a good third passing option for Justin Fields. Justin Fields has not found it. It should be Darnell Mooney. And that's that's the easy answer, and hopefully they will get that chemistry together and he will start getting, you know, we don't need a ton from Darnell, but we do need four catches for 45, 50 yards a game. That's all we need, Darnell, but we, 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 we need to get that for, for this Bears franchise here. So if Mooney doesn't get it together, then you have to sit there and go, all right, well, who can be the next pass-catching option? Tyler Scott, Valus Jones, those are not the guys that you need to rely on here. ESB, that's not his game. He's there to block and, and, and do the little things. He cannot be a pass-catching target. That's where you look at Robert Tanyan. Because with Chase Claypool gone, Tanyan was this nice guy to have in, in two tight end sets. And, and now we're sitting here going, with Claypool gone and Mooney struggling, who is the guy that can emerge as that third pass catching option for Fields? I don't think it's going to be Tanyan. But right now, Tanyan is not that involved in the offense. He's been getting a little more involved now that the passing game is improving. But, I mean, you shouldn't have high expectations for Tanyan, but... If Mooney doesn't get it together, I think 
They're going to have to try some more two tight end sets, get Tanya and more snaps, and see if he can get involved in the offense. Because while it's great to see how good Fields is playing and passing, I should be specifically saying, passing the football, and DJ Moore, it is awesome to see him just rack up the yards, and Cole Komet is doing a really nice job as the complimentary piece to DJ Moore, there's no one else catching balls. Like, if you look at the statistics right now, you're going to see Moore and Komet and nothing else catching the football. So they need to find a third pass catching option. It needs to be Darnell Mooney. But if Mooney can't get it together, Robert Tanyan's really the only other guy I see on this roster right now that could be the guy. And we're going to wrap it up with Conrad Jarrett. He's at Crad underscore Jarrett. Do you think Tevin Jenkins will ever avoid the injury-prone label? He's been banged up since college, and I just want to see him healthy. He has Pro Bowl potential. And Conrad, he absolutely has Pro Bowl potential. He is a very good offensive lineman. You saw just with his presence at, what, 60, 60, 70% of the offensive snaps against Washington. He would have had less if it wasn't for the Lucas Patrick injury. But you just saw what he does, how much he elevates around, because he's just, he's a very good guard. Poles made the move to move him in. I don't know, maybe he could have been a very good tackle, but Poles made the choice to move him in the guard. Jenkins finally agreed to become a guard, and he's done a very good job with it. So yes, Jenkins, when healthy, impact player. Type of player you want to extend and keep on your offensive line for years to come. But the problem, Conrad, is yes, he is injury prone. And right now, there is no reason to think that Tevin Jenkins is going to shed the injury-prone label. And again, I have brought this stat up on this podcast. Tevin Jenkins, we are now five games into year three with Tevin Jenkins. In theory, he could have played 39 games. Tevin Jenkins has played six games where he has played 100% of the offensive snaps. Six out of 39. That is obscenely low. And I love Tevin Jenkins. I, you know, he is a pancake machine. He is fun. I love him on Twitter with these gifts. He's, I, I hope he can stay healthy and the Chicago Bears can extend him. But right now, because of that injury-prone label that he does have, and I don't see him shedding. I mean, again, it was the back, and then it's other things. Now it was this these calf injuries. It's always something. And I hope that his body just kind of comes together and starts staying healthy. There's no reason to think Tevin Jenkins won't be on this team again next year, but you can't rely on him for 17 games at left guard. You just can't do it. You can maybe rely on him for about 10 but you have to, if Tevin Jenkins is your starting left guard, you have to have someone in place that you are comfortable starting roughly half the games. If that's Jatiri Carter, fine. If that's a mid-round rookie you're going to pick up in the 2024 draft, fine. If you're going to pick up an interior offensive lineman that can back up all three positions and is a solid OL6, fine. But you cannot rely on Tevin Jenkins to be healthy. That's just the truth, Conrad, and it sucks. It sucks for all Bears fans that he can't stay on the field, but until he proves otherwise, and proves otherwise isn't this year. Like, Tevin Jenkins plays the rest of this season. He still has not shed the injury-prone label. Tevin Jenkins needs to play the rest of this season without getting banged up, come back next year, 
play at least 15 games and play them well, and then we can start saying maybe he's getting healthier. But until then, it is going to take the next two seasons of football of him staying relatively healthy and only missing a couple games for him to shed the injury-prone label. Now, last thing here, let's do a little prediction. Minnesota Vikings coming up. They don't have Justin Jefferson. He is headed to the injured list. So is this one the Chicago Bears can win? Absolutely, because the Vikings have not looked good. And if the Bears can win this one, then they've got the Raiders there, and suddenly you're going to be kicking yourself. If they win these next two, you're going to be kicking yourself that they lost that game to the Denver Broncos. But suddenly things can be coming back to, you know, coming together. But you know me, I want to really see it before I'm willing to step out on a limb and say that this team has turned things around. So unfortunately, I I want to do it. I want to do it in the worst way. But I will. I think this one's going to be close. I think this is going to be anyone's game in the fourth quarter. And in, in a lot of ways, the Bears have a lot of more strengths on offense than the Vikings do with the with the Justin Jefferson not being out there and the kind of the current situation. But Kirk Cousins can throw for a lot of yards. And yes, I think the Bears secondary is going to be a lot healthier. But I don't know. I know the Bears generated more of a pass rush against Washington, but I also think that may have been a re- as a result of that Washington does not protect Sam Howell well, and Sam Howell holds onto the football way too long. You've got a quarterback who's a veteran, who knows when he needs to get rid of the football. I don't think the Bears generate enough, pa- uh, enough pass rush, and I think that hurts the secondary, even though it'll be healthier. And I do think Kirk Cousins, even without Justin Jefferson, is going to do some damage offensively. So I'm going to say the Vikings win this one 27 to 24. Bears keep it close. Come up a little bit short. I hope I'm wrong. We'll see about that next week, everybody. Bear down. Talk to you soon. Adios. to do's, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.